New acquisitions are one of the most exciting parts of museum work. I truly find it so special to see a collection grow in a direction that aligns with the vision and overall mission of museum. In this episode, I will be speaking with Assistant Curator of Collections, Salim Moore, and we will all get to know Salim and learn a little bit more about painter Charles Ethan Porter and his painting, Peonies, which is now part of the Benton Museum of Art at Pomona College's permanent collection. Salim will also tell us about a structure known as the hierarchy of genre, as it is discussed in this episode because Peonies fits into the genre of still life. And then you will get to hear Salim and I kind of geek out over possible interpretations of this piece. So let's get into it. Hello, hello, everyone. Excited to be with you live here from Claremont, California. My name is Celine Moore, and I am the Assistant Curator of Collections here at the Benton Museum. Wonderful. And could you describe a little bit about how you got here and um, your trajectory and school and things like that? Absolutely. Um, I've literally got to Claremont in Southern California on April 1st, 2021. Um, So I'm just coming up on two months of being here. But before then, I was working remotely um, from Chicago, Illinois, because I started this job on December 4th in 2020. And... So I was in Chicago because I had moved out there for graduate school in 2015 to pursue my MFA at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And that's where I studied painting and drawing. And before then, going backwards in time, I was in Altadena and Pasadena, California, where I was born. And so uh, it's a little bit of a homecoming back here to Southern California. Could you tell me a little bit, because you are an artist, Mm -hmm. can you tell me a little bit about what it's like to be an artist who works in a museum, not necessarily as a practicing artist here, but um, to be surrounded by the work of other artists? Oh, yes. Well, um, it's fantastic, Um, mostly because... You're surrounded by inspiration and you have the opportunity to uh, look closely at objects. Um, you can turn them over, you know, we since we can touch the objects when some of us on the museum staff are able to touch the objects. And so even just being able to turn a drawing around and see what the backside looks and mm-hmm. see perhaps the sketches or the failed starts, false starts, um, or looking at the, how a sculpture is made, um, you know, kind of the invisible parts, maybe quite literally just how it's hung, um, can tell you a lot about how artists approach their work. Um, And that's really great, you know, as an education in and of itself. Mm. And, you know, there's, there's many of us who are artists who work in museum settings. Um, It may be the people who work in coat check, preparators, curators, photographers, people who do the digital imaging or work within the database. I think um, there's a lot of artists who find their ways 
into museums or in arts and culture environments at large because it is kind of um our it's our home base in a way you know or our expanded community awesome and we're here to talk a little bit about a new acquisition of a painting by Charles Ethan Porter. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about what you know about the artist Charles Ethan Porter. Yes. Um, so eventually I'd love to take you downstairs so we can look at it in person, the painting. Um, but Charles Ethan Porter, he was an uh, African-American artist who um, was active around the turn of the century. Um, he was born in the 1840s in Rockville, Connecticut. Um, people aren't quite actually sure about even what day, exact date. So we just know it was in the 1840s. Um, and even in his obituary, uh, the date of his birth is listed different than the date of his birth on his actual gravestone. Um, so his life was a little bit, um, it kind of is perhaps uh, evidence of how his life was a little bit mysterious and even his um, legacy as an artist is still being uncovered um, and researched. Um, however, in his time, he was quite well known and quite famous. He went to the National Academy of Design in New York City in 1869, which was just a few years uh, after the American Civil War ended. And he was the first African-American artist to uh, attend the Academy of Design. Um, and so he studied uh, painting there and drawing. I think he had a pretty academic education. Uh, academic in the sense of studying from cast and um, sculpture into drawing and painting. And he also worked uh, as a, in like selling paintings and drawings to support himself throughout school while he was in New York. And then um, later on, just a little bit of uh, like nine years later in 1878, he returned to his home state of Connecticut and set up a studio in Hartford, and he was selling uh, paintings. He specialized in the genre of still life, which still to this day is in kind of an overlooked or relegated genre of art. And he, um, at this time, he was working in what scholars have described as a pre-Raphaelite uh, style or an indirect painting style. So basically a very traditional way of painting is to um, start with an underpainting uh, that's monochromatic. And then you start with your darkest darks and you work your way to your lights. And kind of the way that painters jargon talks about it is fat over lean. Um, so with every uh, subsequent layer of oil paint, there needs to be more more oil added in the paint. Oh. Um, so you start with thin layers and then you build up layers of oil. And that is the kind of indirect painting that you see a lot of times in, in really classical art. And uh, so he was pretty successful. And in 1881, he actually, he held an auction at his studio 
and he sold 100 paintings um, for a total sum of $1,000. Wow. I don't know what the conversion rate is, but it was enough for him to travel to Paris um, and study at the École des Arts Décoratifs and the uh, Académie Julienne. And even at that time, um, Mark Twain wrote a letter of recommendation for him to be introduced to uh, one of the professors out there in Paris. And he studied um, in Europe uh, for a few years. And being in Paris, his style actually uh, underwent a lot of changes. You know, there was this new kind of avant-garde, perhaps, uh, style of art called Impressionism that was (laughs) just being born. And he actually experimented in landscapes. Um, And so he returned um, to the United States later and basically... uh, was now painting in a more direct style of paint, which was what impressionists do. Mm-hmm. Um, so painting with direct, bright colors, maybe even pastel shades of colors. Um, but uh, he, some of his paintings were received well in the news journals at the time. But overall, um, audiences didn't like them as much. Mm. Um, and so sadly, um, he, his career was in decline. And by the end of his, um, his life, he actually died penniless in his hometown of Rockville, Connecticut. And he even would go door to door, sometimes making trades, trading his paintings for goods and services. Um, But he was well enough known that he was, you know, rubbing shoulders with Mark Twain and even Frederick Douglass wrote about him in 1893. He wrote in Frederick Douglass wrote an essay about the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, Mm. the World's Fair. And he was, Frederick Douglass was lamenting that they left out four African-American artists. And Charles Ethan Porter was one of the artists that Frederick Douglass was lamenting was excluded from the fair. And so he had like a, perhaps a, a fireworks kind of career. And then I think in the 1980s, scholars uh, started finding his paintings, mm. some kind of like having to piece together the clues about his life. And then in the uh, 2008, there was a pretty big retrospective on his work. And now his work, you can find it in American museums, like the mm. National Portrait Gallery, the Benton Museum of Art. <laughs> um, and there's, we still have a lot to learn about him. Yeah. I have a couple of, I guess, like follow-up questions. Mm -hmm. So one is um, when he came back from Paris and his paintings weren't selling as as well and people weren't really into them, was Mm -hmm. it because of the abstraction? Um, Was that the the main reason? It wasn't like representational? That's a really good question. Yes. So I think people really preferred his older style. American audiences uh, preferred his older style um, that was more academic, perhaps more conservative for the time. Um, And even Impressionism was pretty new. And I don't even 
I don't don't quote me on this, but I don't even think in France it was widely accepted yet. Mm. Um, and so audiences had a hard time kind of stomaching this new way of painting, right. um, even just down to the colors, the choice of colors that he wow. used. Yeah. And then um, I was wondering if you could describe a little bit about the relegation that still life has experienced in our history um, and maybe kind of your thoughts about why that might be and basically the hierarchy of genres um was a really dominant kind of system between the 16th and 19th centuries but it even today it still has some lingering effects um and it was kind of instituted through the academy systems in europe um and also in the United States. And it ranked the genres of painting in an order um, with history painting at the top. So that's painting of grand subjects, battles, important events. And then underneath history painting is portraiture. So important people um, and their effects. And then there was like the, uh, genre painting which is beneath portraiture genre painting is like scenes of everyday life so you might have like the fiddle player or oh. the jolly drinkers or the river boatmen i don't know oh but they're just, just like anonymous people um, who are like part of everyday life i guess or fitting into a category of type of person but nobody specific yeah yeah, not necessarily anyone specific, but kind of like scenes that, you know, people could look at and be like, oh, yeah, of course, mm. the shepherds or the cowherd or something. Um, and then beneath the genre painting is landscape and then animal painting. And at the bottom of the uh, ladder is still life. Wow. And of course, artists you know, we're able to blend these mm -hmm. um, kind of genres and include things and play with that. But it was kind of, still life was kind of considered having the least opportunity for invention. And it's, you know, still life is quiet. It's, it's studious. You do it indoors, you know, um, it's arrangements of fruits, flowers, food on tables. Mm. And perhaps, you know, like if given the choice, a lot of people would prefer George Washington on his horse <laughs> right. or Aphrodite coming in over the sea on a, on a shell. Um, and so what's kind of amazing, though, is that... Um, is that it still persists. There's something really special about still life too, because of the stories that you can tell through the genre of it. Yeah. And uh, when you look closely, some of, I think some of my favorite uh, art historians write about still life and, and all the symbolism that is contained within yeah. it. It's, it's a lot like poetry to me, like still lives. Oh yeah. Everything has some sort of like, or other it's referencing so much mm -hmm. um, and, and so like uh, especially like with shorter poems you know you don't have as much space or words mm -hmm. and so all of those little components like your syntax and diction have to carry the weight of like this great message absolutely that's a really good observation i think that's a there's got to be like many many connections between poetry and still life i'm thinking about how 
still life takes advantage of allegory. Yeah. Um, sometimes when you look at Dutch still lives, you know, there might be a fly or an insect right, yeah. to communicate or indicate like the vanity or that life is short, you know, all yeah. things. This is the peak moment of these fruits or flowers in its prime, but tomorrow or next week, those things will wilt and be gone. Right. That's, ex- sorry. That's exactly where my mind went to like Dutch still life paintings that I've seen at like the Getty or other museums in LA mm-hmm. um, and reading like all of the, the, the wall text for those. And it's like a lot of times, like these fruits like symbolize or that flower is like purity and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And so there is a wonderful aspects of symbolism. And then even the literal stories that they tell sometimes, for example, just access to, to trade, You know, if you have Northern European still life painters who are including fruits from Mm -hmm. the equatorial regions of the planet, you know, or warmer climates kind of, oh, how did this exotic pineapple end up in this painting? How did this uh, orange or citrus end up here? Um, And so we have to look, kind of remember to look at those things with perhaps what we call a period eye. So people like, for example, we might just take lemons and oranges for granted because we can get them anytime we walk into right. the grocery store. Even in some neighborhoods in Southern California, yeah. you can find trees. Yeah, exactly. You can find them on the sidewalks. But, um, you know, thinking about a time before like the industrial revolution or before global trade, um, having those things was a big sign of a person's wealth or connection, connectivity to the world at large. What does this hierarchy mean for Charles Ethan Porter, especially at the time at which he was working and painting? So Charles Ethan Porter, right, he was working in the 19th century, in the 1800s. And so um, he was still painting still lives. Mm -hmm. And... That was actually his bread and butter. He was really well known for that. And so kind of an, even though, like I mentioned earlier, by the 19th century, these ideas were kind of starting to to kind of fade um, a little bit. Um, So Charles Ethan Porter was in uh, Hartford, Connecticut. And one of the really premier landscape painters of the time, Frederick Edwin Church, mm-hmm. you know, the Hudson River School, yeah. the premier artist. He actually was also a son of Hartford um, oh. and a local superstar. Um, and he had actually encouraged Charles Ethan Porter to stop doing still lives and work towards landscape. Because at this time in the 19th century, various art schools were opening mm-hmm. and academies and right women were taking art classes right. and they could learn and they could learn still life and even traveling artists would be like I can teach you guys how to play how to paint still life through a method mm-hmm. and so he was Frederick Edwin Church was trying to like push Charles Ethan Porter to do landscape so he could perhaps separate himself from from this more commercial right um and Charles Ethan Porter actually took out an ad in the newspaper announcing that he was no longer doing still lives and that he would only do landscapes um but he would do still lives on commission oh 
but his still lives are too popular. Wow. So he couldn't actually escape it. So he was very aware of this hierarchy of genre. Like that is something that everyone was sort of conscientious of, right? Yeah. I, if he wasn't aware of it, um, he was probably, if he wasn't aware of the total hierarchy, mm-hmm. he was definitely aware of his position as an artist and trying to kind of carve out a niche um, in terms of like a, being someone with, who can sell things commercially, mm-hmm. you know, and trying to stay perhaps competitive. Um, Cause this is still a time of academies, salons, taste, right. When he's putting works on, sh- on display, it's getting written up in the newspaper. Right. He's even having conversations, right. With Frederick Edwin church, um, Mark Twain, um, and other kind of like luminaries like Harriet Beecher Stowe mm. in Hartford. And so I think he was aware of his position. Um, but it wasn't until he went to Europe that he really started doing landscape paintings of the French countryside because I think in Hartford, um, he was he was like just I like I mentioned earlier, it was too he was too popular. He couldn't really escape this reputation, Mm -hmm. but also um, I think based on my research that Hartford was a pretty conservative town Mm -hmm. compared to like Philadelphia or New York or Paris, which attracted artists by the dozens. Mm -hmm. The taste of the people of Hartford and what that community wanted was more conservative, perhaps quieter works. And so he was even and challenged later on um, because when he would return from France uh, with this kind of new way of French painting that we would call impressionism later on, Mm -hmm. people thought it was too avant-garde and they actually didn't quite, the taste in Hartford wasn't ready for that yet. Interesting. Wow. Awesome. Well, um, I think the next question that I have is about the painting itself. And so perhaps um, we should talk about it or address this question in the vault. Yeah, I would love to take you down to the vaults and we'll uh, look at it and do some close reading and we'll describe it as best as we can with our words for our listeners. Absolutely. All right. So I'm here in the vault with Salim and we are standing right in front of Peonies, painted by Charles Ethan Porter. And um, Salim, what is it that you see in front of us? Well, right in front of us, I see a bouquet of flowers that Charles Ethan Porter has painted, and they are being held in a amber glass jug. There's a speck of light in the center of the jug that really catches my eye, which to me is the reflection of the perhaps the the door or the window behind him catching the light. There's also these peonies that are mostly like just lush, sanguine, full of life that are pushing towards the boundaries of the frame and the edges of the painting. While the base of the amber jug, a uh, three peonies with their kind of petals um, strewn about lay at the foot of this amber vase. 
this painting is very easy to look at. There's not a lot of tension by way of um, colors that contrast. Everything is kind of um, not necessarily muted, but like calmer or darker uh, tones. So for instance, the crimson of some of the peonies and the more like foresty green, I guess, of the leaves of the peonies, there's not a lot of tension that's created um, by way of contrasting colors. However, there is a lot of contrast in light. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about this gradient, Salim? Yeah. So Charles Ethan Porter has kind of created this transition from um, these ivory white petals, which are on the right-hand side of the bouquet. Um, they're the petals that seem to be reaching for the corners of the frame. And they have just a little bit of pink blush in them. And then the center of the bouquet, he's kind of contrasted this, um, another ivory white petal with, you can see into its stamens. Um, and this one doesn't really have a lot of kind of blush or pink, but the one to its left is, I believe he's used alizarin crimson, um, that pigment to kind of create this deep sanguine kind of just like, um, vivacious kind of bulb here. And it has this deep, um, kind of crimson color that also is a brown. And then that kind of transitions also into this petal that's kind of drooping towards the desk or the table that the vase sits on that is kind of like you can see how the the life is leading leaving it so he's using this um this kind of light and darks of colors to to lead our eye through the bouquet of flowers yeah and i mean i haven't looked at a lot of still lifes in um a more analytical uh, lens but it seems to me that the vase is kind of sitting on this table that we cannot see the boundaries of. It's kind of just um, going, it looks like it could go infinitely in either direction, right or left. And similarly, it reminds me of kind of the reaching arms of the peonies in the glass vase. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great observation, Hannah, because the table and the background, it's pretty muted. It's a platform but very much the star of this show, the centerpiece, quite literally, is the is the peonies. Yeah, and then there's just a little bit of tension in it where you see hanging over the edge of the table is this, um, this single flower petal that kind of reminds us that the edge is there. Um, but these muted browns, muted grays, muted blacks, in the in in the table and the wall behind it just create this kind of atmosphere um and backdrop for the petals yeah and looking back at um the history of charles ethan porter um i noticed that some of these brush strokes are kind of thick and almost like impressionistic in their quality um it's not especially where it looks like some of the petals might be coming out in space do you think this was, was this painted post 
uh, his trip to France or before? And I, yeah. Yeah, I believe this is after his um, trip to France and his return to Connecticut, um, where he is thinking about some of um, this way of using his old kind of classical training and combining it with this new, more avant-garde, impressionistic style of painting. Um, And one uh, way that he's creating the illusion of depth is by using the physicality of the paint Um, Some of these flowers have more, literally more body, more paint applied so that they read as being in the foreground and closer to us. Whereas the flowers in the background behind those kind of um, thicker petals are painted really sheer and thinly with more glazing. Um, That's also more classical and they read as being in the background. Very neat. Thank you so much for listening. Until the next episode. This episode was produced by Hannah Avalos, Justine Bay Baez, Caroline Eastburn, Aaron Hogan, and Victoria Sancho-Lobis. This episode was recorded by Hannah Avalos. This episode was written by Hannah Avalos and Victoria Sancho-Lobis. This episode was edited by Hannah Avalos. A special thank you to Salim Moore for his generous feature in this episode. Additionally, I would love to thank Xavier Williams, Pomona Class of 22, for producing this original piece of music for Inside the Benton. 